This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. All of these are graves right here. <laughs> Wait, They're everywhere here. They go everywhere. I thought you were joking. Here we're in a cemetery in a Virginian thunderstorm. How fitting is this? It's very fitting because this story is about a big storm that brewed between two Virginia families in 1859. One night of threats and violence triggered a feud that would go on to kill three people in the same family. This story is about domestic abuse, a child custody fight, and most importantly, family loyalty. This feud wasn't between the Hatfields and the McCoys. Their strife lasted for generations. This feud seemed to swell up and then explode much more quickly. This feud is part of our, our local lore here. I mean, people know about it. See if I can see it. Corporal. Yeah. It definitely says Witcher. Yeah. I think it says Addison. It looks like it says Addison to me. It is Addison. Okay. So who would that, what would that be? I'm exploring a private cemetery in Southern Virginia with descendants of one of the families involved in the feud, the Witchers. They were certainly the most notorious of the two families. So this is your grandfather. Uh-huh. Okay. And that's your great-grandfather. Yeah. I'm clear yeah. now, I think. Yeah. And this is also an uncle? That's my mom and dad. Oh, this is this your mom This is your and mom and dad? dad? Yeah. Okay. The Witchers were powerful. They were persuasive politicians and wealthy landowners. The Witchers who fought during wars in America were either heroic or barbaric, depending on whether they were standing with you or against you. And in the 1800s, many of the witchers were ruthless. Even their family today admits it. Witchers are wild. These young men, they were wild. I don't know what it is in the DNA, but we don't behave well. (laughs) On the other side of this feud were the Clements. In the 1800s, they were an affluent family that lived adjacent to the witchers. The patriarch of the Clement family was Dr. George Clement, and his house is still here, just south of Pinhook, about 40 miles north of Danville. George, his wife, and their sons are all buried in the family cemetery just behind this huge red antebellum mansion in Franklin County. I've visited a lot of cemeteries, but I've never had this much trouble finding the grave markers. Y'all, there's a lot of horns in here. You gotta take your shoes off to enjoy the experience. Okay? <laughs> Is that a country thing? Yeah. Is that an Ozark thing? That's an Ozark thing. There's your headstone right there. All right, okay. George Clement loved all 10 of his children, including his four sons, no matter how rowdy they were. I can picture them as 12, 13 years old, going off with Grandpa Clement, which was Dr. Clement, going down, and he'd say, come on, you know, James, come on, William, come on, Ralph, let's go down to the bottom of the hill. We're going to, you stay up here and we go hunting. You know, that's how they got their food. I can, I see that. For generations, these two families, the Witchers and the Clements, lived very close to each other. Wayne Witcher's research into tax records shows that they both had lived in Virginia since the mid-1700s, maybe even earlier. 
The Clements almost certainly served directly under Major William Witcher's command in the Revolutionary War because they all lived in his militia district. Before the war in January of 1775, Isaac Clement and William Witcher were both members of the Committee of Safety. This committee was a form of government. It was intended to self-govern in opposition to the King of England, and it was effectively a death sentence. If a member were caught, he would be executed. There was a Clement and a Witcher in this committee together. Their lives intersected through business deals, marriages, kids, and eventually murder. On the surface, this story might seem simple. A bad marriage between a witcher and a clement ends in violence during a custody battle. After that, there's a murder trial, and no one is happy with the outcome. But family feuds are rarely simple, and this one between the witchers and the clements was epic. The way I like to think about it is an insanely jealous man married to a flirtatious woman who perhaps in some way didn't mind pushing his buttons, it's a very bad combination. Especially when you bring into the mix a grandfather who will kill anyone who disrespects his granddaughter. And she had to know that, you know? So I think it was a terrible match. And I don't think think there's any question about that. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a crime historian and the author of the forthcoming book, All That Is Wicked, which is available for pre-order now. I also wrote American Sherlock and Death in the Air. And this is our new season of Tenfold More Wicked. We were just in 1920s Los Angeles, where an alluring young woman brutally murdered another woman she suspected of seducing her husband. And now we're deep into 1860s Virginia, where the moonshine is flowing. The guns are loaded, and just about everyone is heated. We're calling this season Blood Feud. At the end of each episode of Tenfold, I ask listeners to send me ideas for historical true crime stories, especially ones from their families. I've heard some great stories from all of you, so thank you. And one of those stories came from an Oklahoma therapist named Katie Witcher. She told me about her family's tumultuous history in Southern Virginia near the North Carolina border. The Witcher side of my family, although it was my last name growing up because my dad grew up without his dad, always seemed like, I don't know, not out of reach, but I always felt really connected to them, but we didn't have the means to visit very much. So it was kind of this mysterious, I had a always a longing to our name. It sounds odd, but I think my dad kind of felt the same way, and I probably picked up on that as his kid. It's just like, I love our last name. It's just something that I've always been drawn to. Katie's family is spread out across America, but some of her closest relatives are here in Virginia, where it all started. Katie's great aunt Edith grew up here, right where much of the family raised their kids. When Edith was young, she learned that the witchers were both respected and feared. I know we had a reputation as getting our own way, regardless of how we got it, but also of benevolence. If they had it, they were willing to share it, and no interest on loans or anything like that. Apparently, they helped a lot of poorer people out. They're not records of that. That's just what Grandma told me. Hold on. 
Hello? Kate. Hi, y'all. <laughs> Edith's brother, William Randolph Witcher, better known as Ran, has spent his entire life here. For decades, he has carried on the family legacy of back-breaking labor coupled with deep family commitment. Well, I've been everything, seriously. I've been a tobacco farmer, been a grain farmer, cattle farmer, I drove tractor trailers, done a little everything. And you grew up here, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Never left here, Harley. I've been here about all my life. Ran is appreciative of his family name, even though a few generations before him, the witchers became synonymous with power and violence. They were powerful people. They did not play. They owned God knows how much land down there. I, I've talked to people down there now that, you know, family members of other families, mm-hmm. they owned worlds of land. They say, I don't know. Wayne Witcher is another relative who has studied the genealogy of the family very extensively. He carried a big box with him when he met me in Virginia in the summer of 2021. It was full of documents and memorabilia, things he had collected for years about the family. Wayne says that the Witcher's assets were admired by just about everyone in the area. Politics is power in small towns, and we know this has happened for centuries. But what else is power, which I think was on the Witcher's side, is land. And the Witchers had major land. Yes, they did. They were owners of large tracts of land, and they were very prominent in the uh, plantation industry. They grew a lot of things, were very big in commerce. A lot of tobacco, is that your understanding? A lot of tobacco. They probably grew cotton, though I don't know that for sure, but tobacco for sure. What was the power of tobacco in the 1800s? Was this a just, it must have been a booming industry more than it is now, I assume. Tobacco equaled cash. And so when you had large tracts of land, which could grow a lot of tobacco, then you had lots of cash on hand, which equaled power. The easiest way to explain the feud is to start with the witchers because they really are the focal point. They were the ones left with a terrible reputation after the smoke cleared and the bodies were buried. Wayne says that the witchers were not just powerful because they were landowners, but also because they were strong leaders. I have seen research done into the early families that lived both in Virginia and in Georgia. And from what I could tell, in almost every case, they were involved in military or political activities of some sort. The feud started with a charming, bright brunette named Victoria Witcher. Her grandfather was Captain Vincent Oliver Witcher. He was a former attorney, a war hero, and a politician, the patriarch of the family, and he had a strong family bond. Vincent Oliver Witcher is a very interesting individual. He has a big history in Virginia. This guy was a member of the Pennsylvania County representative group that He was both in the lower house as well as in the uh, Senate. He's an individual who was involved in quite a bit of politics from the uh, Pennsylvania County area. That's more than 30 years in Virginia politics, which has to make you resilient and maybe a little intimidating. Vincent Oliver Witcher's speeches in the state legislature commanded undivided attention from his fellow lawmakers. He was highly logical and influential, even charming when he wanted to be. Most of the time, he got his way, and most people thought that his way was the right way. 
tell me a little bit about Pennsylvania in the 1800s, as far as you know, regarding the witchers. So lots of land, lots of political power, a really big family. Is this sort of big fish in a small pond situation? I actually think it is big fish in a small pond. This family had quite a bit of influence in that region of Virginia, but they weren't necessarily influential outside of Pennsylvania County. There was a few individuals who worked their way up in the political arena, but uh, mostly they were very prominent in that area and they did, uh, they were able to um, exercise that authority um, in in the uh, area of law enforcement and the judicial system. Bill Garant is a local historian who has a relative that pops up in this story a bit later, a man named Buck Gilbert. Buck was actually one of the catalysts for the feud, an old flame of Victoria's before she married a Clement man. Bill says that politics in mid-1800s Virginia created strong partnerships and bitter rivalries that often ended in duels and then death. In those days, having political power, having that kind of wealth often meant not just economic power, it meant basically, and I'll back it up with my fists and my guns if I need to. There are exceptions to that, you know, maybe clergymen or certain rare politicians like a Thomas Jefferson or something. But for the most part, that was part of the program. And it's in no way being disrespectful of any contemporary witcher who, as far as I know, are the finest people I've ever known. But I think the witchers were, were hot-tempered and violent people living in an age when that was not something that was all that unusual. They may have been, even in that age, they may have been a little bit more so. For many families of the time, their personal identities were wrapped up in a strong sense of family pride. And the witchers were proud. They owned land, they ruled local politics, and the reputation as military commanders seemed unparalleled. Another witcher relative, Wesley Witcher, says that this abundance of self-importance might not sit so well with potential in-laws like the Clements, who seemed to not care as much about clout. But Wesley Witcher says that his family valued their legacy and their land. Both were sacred. If you take a macro view, though, of the territory we're talking about, we're talking about the first settled area, really, for the colonies. And so Virginia, I don't want to use the word spiritual, but it's unlike any other state in the Union. And so that might come into play, too, as far as how families view things, especially if you've got an old family like the Witcher family that's been there such a very long time. We're from here. This is, we, you know, this is our soil. This is where we've been. Much of the wealth of both families came from land, and that wealth was generated on the backs of enslaved people. That's something I discussed with my kids as we visited an iconic monument during that trip. You got my phone, right? Look straight up. On our way to Virginia, I took my 12-year-old girls to the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. I remember when my dad took me here. He's huge. But we did get to, we went at night and it was all lit up. But just seeing how large it is, it's pretty overwhelming. So big. Wow. This is the one thing I definitely wanted to do in Washington with y'all. Me too. I was super excited. Oh, look at these steps. They're so cool. Across the way is the Lincoln Memorial. 
In the 1800s, no man seemed protected from the threat of being challenged to a duel, even the future president of the United States. I had no idea he had been challenged in a duel. Historian Bill Garant filled me in on the story. In 1842, a politician with the Democratic Party accused a young Abraham Lincoln of publicly insulting him. So he challenged the future president to a duel. I've always assumed that it was nearly impossible to get out of a duel. But Garant says that in this case, that's what happened. Yeah, Abraham Lincoln got challenged to a duel, but could not accept without being deemed a coward. But as the person challenged, he got to choose the weapons. The man who challenged him was a much shorter man. So he said, we're going to fight with broadswords within a circle and you can't step out. And he made sure he could reach the guy and the guy couldn't reach him. And it was all because Mrs. Lincoln had written some anonymous letters to the paper ridiculing this guy. And he found out about it and thought Abraham Lincoln did it. He couldn't refuse those terms without being considered a coward, even though it meant Abraham Lincoln was going to hack him to death. But they worked that one out. So no one was hacked to death in that duel, thankfully. But most challenges didn't end that well. In 1859, when the feud between the Witchers and the Clements began, Vincent Oliver Witcher was 70 years old, but he was still tough as nails and still prepared to fight anyone who dared insult a Witcher. It's so hard for me to understand why someone would be willing to die, why they would even be proud to die over a verbal insult. But Bill Garant says that the values in the 1800s were rooted in the honor code. These were the unspoken rules that kept much of the country, they thought, relatively civilized. And the honor code was very important in Annabellum, Virginia. The fear, worse than the fear of dying, was the fear of being shamed and being considered a coward. You might as well be dead. I mean, anyone in those days, in the culture, the honor culture of that day, if you allowed yourself to be insulted and did not potentially put your life on the line to, to, to either demand and receive an apology or to die over it or kill over it, you would be labeled a coward and you would be socially ostracized. Dr. Kelly Brennan is a historian with the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. She says that the honor code was very specific and it was also very clear to anyone who lived in the 1800s, particularly men. Some of the stuff that they have is really intense, very specific, but very much tied to how they think of themselves as men. There are certain things that aren't done. A great example of something that is mind-blowing to us is touching a man's nose. Tweaking a man's nose is like time to start a fight. You do not do it. Because honestly, their attitude is the nose is basically the presentation of the penis on the face. The honor code didn't just affect men in 1800s Virginia, it also extended to their families. Many of the women believed in these standards too, even if it meant that their husbands or sons or brothers might lose their lives over a brief mistake. You know, these were families that all had this really sense of this antebellum honor code. They took offense very easily. And when you were offended in those days, you didn't respond by snubbing the person, you responded by shooting them. Often, the honor code was the impetus for feuds, and the most famous feuding families in American history were certainly the Hatfields and the McCoys. Their deadly rivalry started just three years after the Witchers and the Clements began theirs. The Hatfields and the McCoys ambushed each other for almost 30 years until one of them was publicly executed. 
The feud was so famous that there were several movies and TV shows made about it over the past century, including a 1949 movie called Rosanna McCoy about a Romeo and Juliet-type doomed love affair between a Hatfield and a McCoy. In all, more than a dozen people were killed from both families, though the McCoys seemed to have more tragedy on their side. You might have heard author Dean King on my other show, Wicked Words. He wrote a book about the Hatfields and McCoys to remind us that these families weren't just caricatures created in Hollywood, but real people, just like the Witchers and the Clements. And their feud wasn't the first or the last. How common are feuds in the 1800s, family feuds? I mean, are these common, more common than now? Yeah, in these parts, they were pretty common because you didn't have law and order. Most cases, it was more clearly a matter of a power struggle and political control of an area. And it was like a mini war going back and forth. I asked Dean if the McCoy and Hatfield family still debated who caused the feud, even though this happened 160 years ago. He says that family members on each side have their own opinion about what happened. And after that many years, very little will change their minds about their own family's history. Why do you think that's the case? Why is this important to people? Do you think something that happened 170 years ago? You know, in some ways it's it's human nature, it's it's pride, it's family lineage. We take these things seriously and I think particularly in remote areas like that where the families have remained close together, they haven't been divided and kind of broken up and moved all over the country. They really pass on this history to one another. They take it very seriously. There are points of honor here that they're very concerned about, and they want the history told the way they've heard it from their families, and they get upset if you challenge that sometimes. And so it's, it is a very still a very raw and personal matter. The story of Victoria Witcher Smith and James Reed Clement began in the mid-1850s, after their families had known each other for generations. So it probably wasn't a surprise to either family when James and Victoria, who were both attractive and interesting, began courting in their mid-20s. So James and Victoria meet. Do you know anything about that? Those families lived close to each other in general proximity. The different plantations weren't that far from each other. And because of the upper crust nature of those families, they probably had known each other from social events, perhaps church events. And so I can assume that that's where the uh, romance must have blossomed. In 1858, James was 26 years old, one of a total of 19 children in the family. I had assumed that the patriarch of the Clement family, Dr. George Clement, would have struggled to support such a large family. But not only was George a well-liked doctor, he was also a farmer. Like the Witchers, the Clements owned large amounts of land around Franklin County. James was a farmer along with his brother Johnston. Ralph Clement was a lawyer, and two other brothers had left Virginia and headed out west years earlier. James's stepmother, Sarah, took care of their grand home called Mountain View, which was atop a hill there in Pinhook. The Clement family was very large and very committed to one another, no matter what. Wayne Witcher says that the Clements had built a good life for themselves. I don't know that they were a warring family or 
were criminal in behavior. I think they were well-educated. James Clement's dad was a Dr. George Clement, and he seemed to be very well-respected. He was a wealthy man also, and so I, I would expect that that family was well-educated, well-respected, as the Witcher family was. Victoria Smith was born Victoria Witcher. She was about 20 years old when she met James Clement and fell in love. Victoria's father, Dr. Albert Smith, was a well-liked physician, just like George Clement. Dr. Smith married a witcher named Marianne, and together they had Victoria, as well as two sons and two more daughters. Like the Clements, Victoria's family was very close. They celebrated weddings, gathered for large holiday meals, and honored beloved family members at funerals. Wayne Witcher says that Victoria Smith was admired by other families in the rural community, and not just because she was attractive. She was a beautiful woman, charming in personality, well-educated, aristocratic, and she was aristocratic because of the money that her family possessed. Desmond Kendrick is a Clement relative. James and his brothers were Desmond's great-great-uncles, and he knows more about the Clement family history than anyone ever could. He has spent his life researching them. Desmond thinks highly of Victoria. She was clearly cherished by her grandfather, Captain Vincent Oliver Witcher. But Desmond does wonder about their relationship. After all, Vincent Oliver was a war hero and a politician. He didn't seem very sentimental. I can just picture them going down to Grandpa's house, Vincent Witcher's house, as a little girl. And, you know, did he play with her? Did he talk to her? What did he do? There again, you never know. But it's just a perspective on your part of what you think happened. And history is a lot like that. A lot of it is just your perspective of it. Victoria was a dark-haired beauty with a quick wit and lively personality, while James was a hard worker who seemed committed to working with the land. They made a fetching, dynamic couple— both from affluent, respected families that had been intertwined for decades. The Witchers and the Clements all seemed pleased when the pair decided to marry on Thursday, May 13, 1858. The ceremony and the reception afterward were lavish, with loads of food and drinks and music. The local newspapers reported extensively on the ceremony. The Petersburg Register wrote... The nuptials were celebrated with a brilliant party being given in honor of the event, which was attended by the elite of the two counties. Hundreds of well-wishers surrounded the couple while the Clements and the Witchers gazed at James and Victoria. The guest list included some of the wealthiest members of the communities from Pennsylvania and Franklin counties, and there were also dozens of members of their extended families. As people there offered up toasts, the family wondered about James and Victoria's future. They prayed for good health and a happy family. For that day, at least, everyone seemed optimistic. Even Captain Witcher, who was the pragmatist in the family. But while the Clements and the Witchers had known each other for generations, and it seemed like a natural match, there had been issues and fights in the past— And on that wedding day, no one there could know just how terribly it would end up. The first sign of bad news came just three days after the marriage ceremony. 
It happened at a dance. Victoria begged James to come with her to her grandfather Vincent Oliver's house in Pennsylvania. The captain was hosting a dance for the young people in the area, something he tried to do often. But Victoria's night seemed doomed from the start. As she walked around the dance floor among the young men, James followed her. Her husband was not interested in dancing, but he refused to leave her alone with the other men. Victoria smiled and started dancing with just about anyone who was around. James stared as she danced with other young men. He grew sullen and slunk off to another room. Victoria noticed that he was gone. When she finally found James, he was furious. He lashed out about watching her dance with other young men. It was inappropriate. She was a married woman now, and she needed to act like one. Immediately. Vicki Borden is a very special person in this story because she and her daughter Jane are the only people you'll hear from who are descended from both James and Victoria. He was very straight and strict and formal, and she was not. She was light and wanted to have fun, and he did not. She was very unhappy. James yelled that he was miserable watching her immodesty on display. It was humiliating for a conservative husband. He forbade Victoria from dancing with other men. Maybe what Victoria was doing was innocent enough. We don't really know that. But in that time period, I think they really insisted on the separation between the sexes. And if she was out communicating and dancing with other men, I could see where it would create some jealousies in him. And we don't also know whether alcohol was involved. Perhaps she was drinking. Perhaps they were drinking. Perhaps they had you know, become intoxicated. He screamed that she wouldn't even be allowed to talk with other men unless he were close by. Victoria seemed stunned. She was quiet, and then she was ashamed. Victoria later told the witchers that it felt as if James were persecuting her, but she refused to give up on her marriage. James and Victoria stayed with her grandfather, Vincent Oliver, a few more days before they moved into a house that James had arranged for them, close to both of their families. Victoria then decided that perhaps this darker side of James was fleeting. After all, he had courted her with kindness, and she expected to feel that once again when the marriage could be on proper footing. So they moved into a little house at the foot of the hill below his father's Mountain View plantation. Victoria spent several months cleaning up and organizing, turning their new homestead into a lovely house. Victoria also managed the small group of enslaved men and women who worked on the land and in the house, including a six-year-old boy. We don't know much about him, but he would play a big part later on. James and Victoria would often ride to the top of the hill in a little buggy for dinner with the Clements. They hoped for children, and within a month of their wedding, Victoria became pregnant. She told the witchers that James was working hard in the fields. She was toiling inside the home, trying to adhere to his rigid rules. As spring turned to summer, James and Victoria began feeling more tension in their marriage. I mentioned before that Vicki Borden is a direct descendant of James and Victoria. That's because her great-grandmother was Lelia Maud, their daughter. 
Lily Ahmad would become the epicenter of an atrocious argument that would eventually trigger the feud. When I asked Vicki Borden about who was to blame, we talked a lot about perception. You can imagine that for every accusation that Victoria leveled, James had a response. She accused him of verbally abusing her at the dance just a few days after their wedding. He denied it, and he even said that he thought her behavior with other men seemed just fine to him. It can be very confusing as you dig through family documents from both the Witchers and the Clemens. It depends on who you talk to. If you talk to the people who are on the side of the Witchers, they say maybe she was unhappy, maybe there were reasons for her unhappiness. And if you talk to the people who are on Dr. Clement's side, they say, well, you know, maybe she was just too frivolous. So nobody knows. But there were quite a lot of people who thought James was too protective and even possessive. When male neighbors would drop by the house, James would become moody and he would sulk. His immense insecurities made everyone miserable. He discouraged her from having conversations with any man. James and Victoria generally rode to the Sunday services in a buggy. If a man asked to ride with them, which was common, James would ride in silence. James always accompanied Victoria to church, even when she didn't want him to, especially when she didn't want him to. He sat right beside her, which might not seem strange, but in those days, many rural Virginia churches separated their pews by sex. James would insist on sitting in the ladies-only section right next to Victoria, despite the glares from his wife and other women. This all seems really familiar to me. It actually sounds a lot like Edward Ruloff from season one. He also tried to control his wife, Harriet, before murdering her. Victoria often asked James about his feelings, but he would simply shut down and ignore the questions. Victoria, in turn, would talk with her family, not just her parents, Dr. and Mrs. Smith, but also the Witchers. And a man like Captain Vincent Oliver Witcher was likely to be dangerous after hearing that his granddaughter was unhappy with her abusive husband. They were known to be hotheads. In fact, I could tell you from DNA research into that surname, it is of Scandinavian origin, and that would be a Viking, I guess is how you'd have to say. So I, I actually do think the DNA, the genetics is seen in the way that these different individuals handled themselves, both politically and interpersonally. James needed to be careful. He knew that Vincent Oliver Witcher was keeping a close eye on him. And we don't even know everything that Victoria told him in the early days of their marriage. She might have taken some of the blame herself. She might have softened the phrases that James had screamed at her. But in the 1800s, women, particularly women in the South and in the countryside, were expected to defer to their husbands. When Victoria was about two months pregnant, James became even more threatening, more violent. When they were first married, he accused her of flirting. But now he was leveling charges of infidelity. He was sure she was cheating on him, and maybe the baby wasn't even his. These new accusations infuriated Victoria, and she began arguing back. Wayne Witcher says that this doesn't surprise him at all. 
I could just tell you from my experience looking backwards from older relatives I have, most of these witcher females are pretty strong natured. They don't like to be pushed around. And so that might have been the situation here. Maybe Victoria was one of those people who was self-willed. And I can imagine with her family being the way they were, she probably didn't like to be pushed around. And so she probably pushed back. As the fall leaves began to turn in Southern Virginia in 1858, Victoria began to lose her patience. She started teasing James just to rile him up, which made him even more furious. She lashed out at him and they argued relentlessly. Less than six months after their ceremony, she was already thinking of divorce. That autumn, Victoria Smith Clement surveyed the weapons in her family's home. James had a sharpened Bowie knife laying on a side table. There was a steel sword cane several feet long leaning against a wall. And then there was James's favorite weapon, his Colt pistol. James would sit down in front of her with the pistol in one hand while slowly fiddling with a bullet in the other. He would slowly load the bullet into the chamber of the pistol and warn her about her adultery. Katie Witcher is a therapist for victims of domestic violence. She's read the description of James's behavior during his marriage, and she immediately recognized a pattern, the actions of a man steeped in his own low self-esteem. I see with abusers, whether it be men or women at the core, same with narcissists, and they often can be labeled as a narcissist, they hate themselves. They have such low self-esteem that they cannot trust the person that said I do, that they have to put chairs around the bed. So I think a lot of times it's just tying to this same theme of when you have to try so hard to defend yourself, and it really kind of goes down to this pride thing. Katie Witcher might be right. James might have been a narcissist. But the marriage problems between James Clement and Victoria Witcher seemed deeper than just pride. Victoria might have provoked him at times, but he was certainly becoming more abusive toward her, both physically and verbally, and their daughter, Lelia Maud, was due to be born in the spring. Victoria's safety was more important than ever, but James's jealousy and insecurities were deepening. Bill Garant says that James was a thug who just wanted to control his wife, and he was able to do so for a while. But that was changing. She clearly was, I think, being bullied by her husband after the marriage. I mean, he sort of began to treat her like, you'll do what I say, and, I'm, and you don't leave the house without me looking at you, and all that sort of thing. It's an ugly mess. A bad marriage during the time of honor culture, it was just a, a pot waiting to boil over, you know? Victoria's family, the Witchers, were alarmed. They feared the marriage wouldn't end well. And for several members of one of the two families, it would end in murder. On this season of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. It's kind of an ongoing terrorism, is the way I describe it, in an intimate relationship. So maybe you don't see physical violence necessarily, but you definitely see those types of controlling behaviors and that type of intimate terrorism. These are two powerful families, two big families, and there was an affront against one of them, and that's against all of them, and that's either on their side or our side, and so here we go. As an adult, you realize the weight of it. They killed each other over public insults. 
I mean, imagine how far we've come. Only 160 years ago, people just killed each other over insults. I mean, that's basically Twitter. That's like, if Twitter existed 160 years ago, I guess everybody would just be mass murderers. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Laura Sobel. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. Executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical true crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmoremedia.com. Subscribe now on Amazon Music, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen.